Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Joe McGosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Swati Raju on the show. Swati is head of engineering for Confluence Cloud at Atlassian. She was uh, previously a CTO, eng manager, and IC at various companies, uh, including Groupon, Yahoo, and Ticketmaster. And in this episode, we're going to cover tips for building effective remote eng teams, how to manage large product architecture transitions, and of course, AI's impact on collaborative workflows, because we got to cover the topic du jour. So welcome to the show, Swati. Thank you for having me, Shomik. It's been really exciting to uh, to be invited to this. And I'm so actually happy to find out that we have so many common friends. And I also really like the idea of this bite-sized digestible content. So I'm excited to chat with you today. Well, thank you. I think we'll have some great insights to deliver here. So I, I first want to start off with building remote eng teams. And actually, a number of founders that I asked in preparation for this episode had questions around this. So this is something that a lot of founders are trying to understand how to do. Yeah. But your former colleagues mentioned that you were particularly good at building effective remote engineering teams. And so what comes to mind, I know it's a broad question, but what comes to mind when I say, how did you build those effectively? Yeah. So maybe like a little bit of context setting, right? When we, in March 2020, when the whole world was going remote, I was at Atlassian. We did the same, went fully remote. What's different about Atlassian, though, is that it's continued to be one of the few companies that didn't roll back on that decision to be fully remote. And Atlassian's philosophy is something called Team Anywhere, where our employees can be anywhere in the world as long as there's a, a legal entity there for Atlassian. So within that context then, and, and secondary to that context is in Atlassian, we're building software that enables teams to do their best work. So it could be like a small startup. The idea is just the back of a cocktail napkin and you just have you and your co-founder and you're trying to build something and you're working through your sprints. Or it could be literally putting like some a man on the moon or very large enterprises. So when you're talking about the different types of teams that might be doing like this great work that's changing the world, those teams can be in any shape or form. They can be high, highly remote or they might be in person. So in a sense, it's very nice that we are able to dog food, this whole idea of what the future is going to hold, which is very, very flexible teams. And so, you know, that that's sort of the context that I wanted to, to set within that. So what I've found kind of high level for very effective remote teams is firstly, to be able to organize the work effectively across these teams. So you have a fully global team. How do you organize the work so that it can be efficiently and effectively done, number one. Number two would be kind of the operating model of how we execute day-to-day from like large projects to literally sprints and rituals and processes. So that would be the number two thing that I think we've over time really honed down on how we do, do that. And then finally, I don't think anybody has fully nailed remote work as yet. I don't, I think our tools will still continue to evolve and improve over time. So this whole idea of measuring and course correcting as we go then becomes really critical. So high level, like those would be the the three things and hopefully we can chat more on, on those. Yeah. So one specific question that people had around that, right, was really how do you build the culture? 
because yeah. that seems to be something where, you know, when you're in person, you've got the water cooler talk, right? You've got the happy hours happening. You've got whatever, all this sort of stuff. Now, all of a sudden, everyone's over whatever video communication tool that they're using. And so how do you build culture into those teams? Yeah, that is a really, really good question. I think a couple of things, uh, you know, some of this is we obviously transition from in-person teams to remote teams. So there was already this very strong culture and set of values. So there's that. Now, if you don't have that, then you really have to lean into it, which is, say you're, you're a new company that's fully remote. You really have to lean into making that happen. I think it's really fundamental then, say, for example, for a startup to have a really strong set of values to begin with. So for Atlassian, some of the ones are, you know, the importance of teamwork, the importance of customer first, et cetera. So those sorts of things really then, then play out. The second critical thing as well is just being able to, if you think about a single team, what's the most important thing there? It's going to be how well that team operates. And there's been all this research and studies from Google, the Google Aristotle project about the importance of psychological safety. And that becomes even more critical when you're not sitting next to the person, right? Mm -hmm. You're like my, hundreds of miles away from your teammates. You don't see them. You see them in this small screen. How do you build that connectivity, connection, and the human connection and the, the psychological safety? And by psychological safety, I mean, like, can you give them feedback that might, you know, that's a hard feedback and still be, have, have be really cool about it? cool as in, you know, be able to work, be able to have great respect, still want to work with each other. And what I found is, especially what at Atlassian, we, what we think has been really useful is we have this thing called intentional togetherness. So this is the time when teams just come together physically once every quarter or so, and they're coming together and, and really spending time with each other, getting to know each other, doing a lot of non-work activities together as well. Interesting. To really like let those barriers of what we perceive as this is how I should be in the world or whatever that might be, those melt away a little bit and you really truly connect with the other other humans so that you can really be a great team together. So I think those are the two things that I think have been really valuable. And so would those be considered offsites or is that like something separate from offsites? Those are usually offsite. So we still have our offices. So everyone just comes into the office and then they'll do a few activities. They might go out on a hike. My direct team came together and we went out on a hike. And then it so happens everyone loves the outdoors. So we did a few outdoor activities and then we go out, you know, hang out and go out for drinks, whatever that might be, just fun stuff so that it's not just about work, but we are able to kind of just take that focus time to connect with each other. And I found that to be incredibly useful just for at the, at the level of the team to have that bond to get started with. The question I want to ask you in terms of that culture is, you know, I, I think a, a lot of cultures expressed through, frankly, decision making, right? And actions right. that are taken in various environments. And so, you know, when you have these remote teams and you, you have people that need to execute on various scenarios that they're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis, yeah. how do you like kind of codify or maybe it's not strictly codified, but how do you get people to think about, hey, what should be decentralized decision-making that you can make on your own at like the IC level versus yeah. what needs to be centralized so that we can talk about the impact that it would have on the software or customers or the whole team or whatever? Yeah. So 
Maybe I can answer that by at a individual team level, we always want to organize these teams in a way that that team has all of their the individuals in that team, including product design, research, etc. They're all in a single basically time zone, so they're not. There's not so much communication that's happening, like you know, from India to Mountain View. So we will avoid that. They're all in the same time zone. Secondly, that they have the ability to make the right level of autonomous decisions, and at least at their level. They're the ones who have the most context on the problem they're working on. Hopefully, what leaders are able to do is really clarify what's the goal for this team, what do they need to achieve within this amount of time, whatever that might be. And within those constraints, then, what this team has is a high level of context to be able to make the right decisions at their level. We also have a very strong culture, and we're really building forward on that, of being data-driven and experimentation, et cetera. So if a team really has the right amount of data to be able to make a decision, right amount of context as well to make the decision, they're able to do so. And then aligning with the next level of leaders, then they're the ones who might have the, the wider context about the whole product or about the whole company, and that's where they might come in. So really, to your question about codifying that, being really clear, A, about goals for each team, and B, what decisions get made at what level, what does success look like, and then also what data will we lean on, just having clarity across the board on that, and where do they fall back or or need help course correcting from, say, leadership or top-down. You know, you mentioned putting a man on the moon, right? Um, which is which is pretty cool. But in, in that context, right, the software is now impacting, in that case, like life-threatening uh, sort of yeah. situations, right? Like the right. very impactful situations. And so from that perspective, I think, how do you balance what I would imagine would be like a core tenant is probably reliability, right. but then also at the same time, the speed and the innovation and kind of doing new things so that you can push the product forward. And I, I think this is like, you know, Facebook had, you know, move, move fast yeah. or something to like move fast with stable infrastructure or something like yeah. that, right? Like, is that something that Atlassian has had to think about as well? Yeah, we've really had to get everyone on the same page and have like a clear kind of mandate around how we operate around these things. So like you said, it really depends on what you're building, right? So for a product that is for for teamwork, for tools, for tooling, et cetera, that people rely on for very critical things and, and moonshot projects, but also like life-threatening sort of things that you might be relying on those tools for, reliability then plays plays a key role. So we have a really clear sense of what's the order of priority of things. So the number one thing, Above everything else is security. Like we want to make sure that product is secure, a customer's data is safe. It, it isn't getting accessed by someone who shouldn't be. Second would be reliability. So to your question, it has to be up. Confluence as well as Jira has a commitment to three and a half nines for reliability, which is that 99.95% is it's up and working. So highly available. And then the next one would be performance. You want things to be performance. So it's not like just you're logging into something and it's taking forever. After that is what everything else, which is like the innovation, moving things forward, all of that comes within the next set of buckets. So if things break or there's an outage, it's literally all hands on deck. Everyone will jump onto it. 
And then we built a very strong kind of DevOps culture around how we maintain that high level of reliability. Yeah, it's such a hard challenge to deal with. But at the same time, I think given the not only the volume of customers, but yeah. also how centralized it is and to a lot of different uh, organizations, it makes sense that that is the, the top priority. So, you know, a, a question I want to kind of move into a little bit is on how to get these teams to still have that brainstorming and creativity in this context. Like, are there rituals, tools, or anything that you use to get the team to kind of have that, you know, whiteboarding type moments? Right, right. So just because Atlassian is in, you know, the business is about building tools for remote teams as well as teams in general, within Atlassian and within Confluence itself, we have a lot of tooling that allows us to, to do this kind of remote creative problem solving, brainstorming, etc. So we just launched six months ago a sub-product within, within Confluence called Whiteboards, which allows you to just do, you know, while you are on your page as well, swap over and see, do, do some level of whiteboarding very easily. We have things like to be able to do retros where you're able to brainstorm on how we can improve things. We have templates around that. And then Atlassian recently acquired Loom. So that's another way you might record your ideas and then share it out. So talking about remote collaboration, those would be the tooling. What I have found, though, that these all need to be balanced with with some level of, if whenever required, in-person collaboration as well, especially when we've had highly critical, like it's really important to get this to the market. Say, for example, I'll give you an example. We were working on AI six months ago, and it was really critical that Atlassian put out something very, very, very meaningful in terms of where the world was going towards LLMs, et cetera, some really good solutions around AI. And the best way was to just get everyone together, you know, lock ourselves up in a room, really brainstorm, come up with solutions. And, and then once that was done, once we had that design in place, design and kind of early thinking in place, then people could go and kind of go back to where wherever they worked from and then go, go and execute. But sometimes to get those like real creative juices flowing, et cetera, that in-person connectivity then is something that's that's great to leverage. So I think it's a balance. It's like some of it can absolutely happen in kind of the digital realm and then the rest really that, that kind of like going hard on you lock yourself up in a room and come out when you have the solution is also I find very invigorating and energizing as well. We had the chief product officer at Braze on a previous podcast episode, and what he said was, you know, sometimes you just gotta lock everyone in a room, just feed Mountain Dew through the through the vents, so that everyone just kind of gets their brain juices flowing. And I yeah, think uh, I think sometimes there's no substitute for that. No, there, is, there is. But in that in that area, I have kind of a, a hard question maybe to ask you in terms of how this works. But what I've noticed is a lot of times you have maybe not necessarily the top performer, but it's like a, a mid-level performer or something, but is this kind of cultural glue, right? It's a person that like gets people to go to happy hours. It's a person who gets people to talk about what went on with their day, like so on and so forth. And, you know, you may not see it in the performance metrics, so to speak, or something like that, but you, it's, it's this sort of soft thing that's there. How do you identify those types of folks when it's remote? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I think in general, it's like, it's always that challenge to be able to recognize the people who are doing the behind the scenes kind of work, like who's, who are not talking so much about it. So there's always that, right? There's always have to have a pulse on 
on who those people are. But then there are always those individuals who are always putting their hand up, doing all this extra work to be that connector, be that glue, etc., and honestly, hopefully it's not around kind of like around gender lines where it's a certain gender who's always doing this work. But overall, I think having a culture that recognizes the importance of teamwork and that's not just like, hey, it's not you're the person who delivered this or this many lines of code, whatever that might be. But there's also this other, this meta level of like the glue, the person who's the glue, the the connector, the person who actually tried to take that extra time to solve someone's problem or enable this conversation between two teams so we could kind of find a solution to be able to recognize that. I think this is something that's a cultural thing that hopefully if there's an emphasis towards teamwork, those things get recognized. Well, I promised Joff that I would get in one of his questions for you. And so he he said that, you know, what he's seen you do very well is build a great partnership between product design and edge. And so I uh, wanted to ask, what are your tips to be able to do that? Yeah, that's such a good question. So maybe I'll take the opposite approach. When has that not worked? I've seen that not work well when there are very, very strict silos. It's like, okay, product does their work. This is their swim lane. They do this thing and then design does this thing and then they pass it on to engineering and engineering does this thing. I have seen that to be fine. It works to a certain level. Baseline, it'll work fine. But if you're really trying to do something to the next level and really, really have a high-performing experience within the workforce, I think that's a huge missed opportunity. So what I've found useful is um, a couple of things. One is the silo busting to be able to say, you know what? I remember in my early days, for example, at Yahoo, I was, a, I was an individual contributor engineer. And Yahoo had a great culture of allowing everyone to just come in and listen in, in research. And there was this thing that I had built and I was very proud of it. It was, I, I used to work on Yahoo Search, very proud of it. And it was getting shipped and I sat in watching actual users, you know, work on it and try it out. And it was painful. It was incredibly painful to see all the things that I thought was so obvious. They didn't quite it was hard for them to, this was kind of new and not very obvious. And it was kind of a learning moment to be like, okay, even if you're an engineer, just be curious about how this part of the business works or how this craft works. Because at the end of the day, we're in the service of building great products. We're in the service of our customers. So this sort of like siloed approach doesn't work very well at all. In fact, like the engineer who's working on on the code or designing that, you know, working on that UI needs to have that nuance of customer empathy. So customer empathy is not just a design thing or a product thing. It's like everybody, right? So I think that sort of like alignment across all those crafts of just making sure that when we when we all work together, it's really does magical things for our customers and for our business is probably key. Yeah, I think the customer empathy is something that everyone, I think, struggles to continue to embed, but Atlassian has you know, done a remarkable job on it. So uh, so whatever you guys are doing, it's it's, it's working. So, But I, I want to move into a pretty large thing that happened during your tenure, which was the, the server to cloud transition and major architecture change, major change for, for customer delivery, and also internally as well, in terms of aligning teams and, and, and building it. So the first question I have is, 
when that transition happened, I think customers were given significant notice, mm-hmm. right? And they were saying, hey, you've got time to transition. Don't worry about it. It'll happen. But I imagine for new customers coming in, right, they were offered then the cloud product. So your internal teams had to had to get that stood up, you know, yesterday, right? Yeah. And, and it needs to be working and functional and, and, and all that. So how did you go about managing that transition in terms of organizing teams to pursue that while not affecting the existing, you know, server customer? Yeah, oh, yeah, that's a really, really, really relevant question. So like you said, that transition from server to cloud kind of started, I want to say like five or six years ago, but Atlassian made a really good decision around how they would do this, which was they forked the code base. So at that point, they made one version was going to server, one version then we kind of copied over and was the the seed for the for the cloud version that overall was a good strategy for us however on the cloud we're constantly innovating moving forward so for example even in the last one year in confluence we've launched the ai uh, feature sets a whole new whiteboard feature set. We're doing databases. Then before that, we completely revamped the editor, which is kind of the core piece of the functionality. So when all of these transitions, all of these new features and innovations happen within one part of the code base then and the server version, now we have a whole lot of customers still on server. And when they transition into this new experience, First of all, you want to make sure that whatever workflows they had already, their data, their workflows, whatever they're used to in terms of integrations, et cetera, work seamlessly, even though this product has completely like evolved since then. So we want to make sure that that experience is pretty seamless. And then also when you bring them to this whole new world, it still feels like the old product that's like you know, I spend a lot of time in this. I know this product really well, that there's this level of familiarity. But at the same time, then onboarding to this new set of features is actually a really positive and wow experience for them. So making sure that that happens well is something that we spend a lot of time on, especially as you talk about like larger and larger customers. So within cloud, then we had to get ourselves ready for those very large customers, 10,000 users, within a company, et cetera, 50,000 users, whatever that might be. So getting it technically ready and performant for the, those those very large customers has also been a large part of the work then. Yeah. In terms of that transition, though, when, when the customers are doing it, from the engineering side, like, is it, you know, obviously you have all the technical and, and scalability stuff and multi-tenancy and all of that, which I may have some questions around that, actually. Yeah. But in terms of also, you mentioned like the editor, that, yeah. that feel of understanding what it used to be and, and now this, you know, new product or, or new delivery model of the product that you're now onboarding into. Was that onboarding something that you, you know, the team had to spend a lot of time thinking about how would we specifically bridge from server to cloud to make that like that server to cloud experience seamless? Yeah, absolutely. So for example, you edited a page on the server and then your instance migrated to the cloud. You want to make sure it looks about the same, even though the editor is a completely new data format. Oh my God. <laughs> the language is different. All of that is, is different. The macros are different. So you want to make sure that it basically the, the integrity of the content is still there, even though it might look better or improved. But even with that, at the user level, not just at the admin level, even at the user level to be able to do some level of uh, what we call change boarding to get them kind of 
a little more educated and give them a little more tooltips around like how do they be successful on cloud is absolutely something that we've been we've been spending a lot of time on. Yeah, when that transition did happen, you know, you go from maybe you have a large database and now you're like, well, we got to shard it, you know, 50 different ways to to be able to manage this or or whatever. It just seems like there's so many infrastructure yeah. challenges yeah. that you now have to take on. Yeah. Was it a combination of, hey, we're going to hire a new talent in as well who's gone through this before to do it? Or was it kind of like, hey, existing team, this is a really exciting time for us to move up this learning curve very quickly yeah. and, and we're going to go and tackle it together? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, scale, like you said, is super important getting that right and getting that really performant. But apart from that, there's a whole lot of other security and compliance things that also go into all right, of this, right? right? Like data residency is important, HIPAA, security, encryption address, all of these compliance-related things. So over time, we've built that expertise as, as well as obviously Atlassian has grown. So we've been able to hire some really great talent. And so it has been some level of just continued investment in this area just to, to make sure we're supporting very, very large customers as they migrate. Yeah. So some folks said that the enterprise grade product, right, with the security, the the reliability, the compliance took a lot of work and took some some meaningful effort to go and get that done. Like, were there any like unexpected challenges that that occurred as you were trying to go about doing that? Yeah. Oh my gosh. A lot of unexpected challenges. I think uh, some of them have been around things like integrations and there's been a rich set of add-ons and uh, third-party applications that are built on top of Confluence, Shira, et cetera, to make sure that those work correctly in the server world as well as in the cloud world. So there was a lot of trying to get that that right and get get that get that working in this new world with a new editor, et cetera. Then also in the earlier days, what we what we noticed is every time, so I'll give you going back to the that editor example when we first launched it, our users were like, what is this? What's this new thing? Like, Because mm, completely new, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just moved my cheese. Like, this is not like, and, you know, we're very, very metrics driven. So we, we were measuring how user satisfaction was over time. And of course, there was some level of like, you know, when the first time you launch something, there are a whole lot of bugs that you kind of might might run into, especially for something that's as nuanced and complicated as the editor that's been around for 10 years or whatever that might be. Once we kind of refined it more over time, we we noticed that users were so much happier than the older version. So we try to be very metrics driven to see customer satisfaction or user satisfaction from this kind of old uh, server version to the cloud version. How are they doing? What are the areas? Keeping track of like, what are the attributes that we might be falling short on cloud. So we're asking them about performance. We're asking about you know stability and reliability, new feature sets, so all of that. So we can actually act on that. And like you said, these migrations are very complicated. And so we want, we want to be constantly fine-tuning and refining it. Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's just such an amazing shift, right? And, and to do it at the scale that Atlassian is doing it is just remarkable. And so I'm sure there's plenty of anecdotes that you could share of, of trying times or, or you know, heroic efforts by a team or, or anything to get things done. But I'm just wondering if there's one that comes to mind with Confluence Cloud or, or Atlassian in general that could bring it to life for listeners. Because I think it's just such an interesting 
shift to see this happening, right? We, we've all seen, you know, kind of Adobe did it in the past and, and uh, to see, you know, Atlassian doing it live, it's, it's, it's really cool and do it successfully. So, yeah, I think there are actually, there are, there are several kind of uh, battle, battle stories, battle scars there, <laughs> but to the level that there's there's sometimes been, and I don't want to name names, obviously, but there's sometimes been some very large customers where we're trying to do a migration and it and running into, into blocks, and literally the whole team has to come on board and actually having to build some custom code just for those that particular customer just to make sure that their migration works works seamlessly. The idea, obviously, is that. You know, you're not doing anything custom, and every everybody's instances are just migrating directly from server to cloud. But in certain instances, we did have to go in there and really have to like tweak things and debug it specifically for what their workflow might have been. So those are some of the harder ones to, especially for the very very large and important customers that we've had to run into. It's funny to hear that no matter what, that always keeps going, right? Yeah. It's early days of startups. You know, that's the name of the game. You're always doing different custom things. And then everyone wants to make it, you know, super scalable. But I think in the end, you need to do whatever's yeah. possible to yeah. make the customer successful. So right. <laughs> it's funny to hear that no matter what, there's always going to be yeah. times that that still happens. So. And we can't be too like pedantic about that and be like, oh, we don't want to do anything custom. No, sorry. You got to do what's right for the customer. <laughs> so the code's not looking pretty. Uh, no, I don't care. Sorry, it's going to put that hack in and make it work for people. Right, right. <laughs> Well, the the last question I have in, in this area is actually on the topic of downtime, right? Yeah. Because as you mentioned, it's like when it happens, it's it's serious. It yeah. impacts customers. It's it impacts their their day to day lives. So, I guess my question is that there's no way to know why a down, downtime would occur because yeah. if if you knew how it would happen, you would stop it. So, how do you prepare for the unexpected? Yeah. I mean, this is an area kind of close to my heart because I uh, kind of led, before I became head of engineering for Confluence, I was leading kind of the, the reliability initiatives for up-leveling our, our reliability there. A couple of things. So what we found through our, our data and through our learnings is, I would say around 70% of outages usually end up because of changes. So somebody has changed something in the code base and they meant it to work in a certain way and it didn't, or it didn't work in this circumstance, which is in production, it's slightly different, so it didn't work correctly there. So as much as possible then, the reality is things will break and what you want to do is make sure that you're doing it earlier in the process. So we call this whole thing shift left. So if you're going to have see problems, like can you see it earlier in the development phase? So can you see it in your internal systems or whatever, the, so that you, you, you have a chance to remediate it before it gets in the hands of customers. So we've done a lot of work or really pushed to get more and more of our signals for outages earlier in the de deployment process. The other one is really leaning hard on building resilience within our system. So not just preventing outages, et cetera, but when an outage happens, can the blast radius of that be really, really small? Can it just be like, can be something that's that's not hugely, like there's not a huge PR around it and there's like Twitter uh, uh, talk and chatter about it. It's not making the headlines, that sort of thing. Can you make it really small and with least amount of impact? So we've done a lot of investment around that as well. The other thing I want to call out is because we're built on top of 
other cloud providers. Our reliability that we offer then, it has to be like what theirs is. And it'll be like usually slightly less than what theirs would be. And a lot of cloud providers still continue to have some level of like they have their deployments and they would have their some level of outages. So for us to build more kind of things like caching layers, mm. resilience, etc. So this kind of thing requires a heavy amount of investment and it also requires a lot of expertise around that and continuous thinking towards that. Apart from that, of course, you know, the other DevOps things that we have is like we everyone's developers are on call. Right. We have a really kind of refined system of managing when when an incident happens, how do we quickly resolve it? How do we bring bring systems back, et cetera? We have a, uh, we have a pretty refined way of doing that. And I want to actually move into a section around AI and the impact on, on collaboration and all yeah. that. But, but one question I actually have maybe still in this area is, would it be possible or do you envision a world where you're kind of using AI to develop tests where you can kind of almost simulate like, hey, if you push this, this would be a breaking change or this would cause an issue like that? Or, or, or are we still a little bit far away from something like that? No, I absolutely, by the way, love, 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 love that question because I think we, we will get to that place very, very quickly here. Given all the, the, the AI support that we already have for just writing out code, Tests is just the next level. I, I, in fact, I know of multiple startups that are actually investing heavily into this area because it's it's a no-brainer when it comes to to be able to automate some of this. Yeah, I, I think that that would be very cool. I'm looking forward for a world like that. But yeah. but you know, given the wealth of of data and insights that I mean, Confluence has already internally. Now you can kind of annualize that and surface it a lot more easily with with LLMs and, and, and some of the advancements. So first off, like just high level, what is exciting to you about what AI will do to Confluence yeah. and, and the, the product experience? You know, I think basically all, all of our tooling in the next couple of years is going to transform, literally transform, right? Like theoretically, when I think about it, anything that's grunt work right now is going to go away. So with what we've already launched, a lot of the work is using LLMs to be able to create just the stub for something, get get something started, an idea started. So you don't have this blank page problem, which is, so if you know, you're like, hey, I need to write a job rec. So you're able to kind of do that within Confluence and say, can you create a quick job rec for me with this, that, and the other details? That's obviously something that Chat GPT also does. So very similar, similar to that, but within a team's context. And you've obviously seen this in, in other products as well. But apart from that, I think what is really, really interesting is because Confluence is, if you think about it, it's kind of the brain of your team. Like the whole knowledge base yep. of your team is sitting Crazy. somewhere, yeah. right? Yeah. So if you're able to very easily like ask uh, questions I'm new in this company and I want to learn something about this project and it can give me kind of a brief summary. They're like, they might be 20,000 pages you have to read, but it can give me kind of a brief of what this is and really kind of explain to me how does this work, et cetera. Those are the areas that are really interesting, that kind of question answering, semantic search, those sorts of things. The third part of it is really then connecting because it's not just, you know, in a way, Confluence is an island, but there are all of these other products that are integrated with, with it. 
And when you think about knowledge workers, they're using something like 18 different SaaS products and your knowledge is sitting in all of these uh, these places. And so to be able to integrate all of this and bring it in a way that that is meaningful. So I want to learn about this big project that we are working on, Project Y, that's going to be delivering in a few few months. And it can tell you from Confluence, from Jira, from various other Trello, whatever else you might be using, Loom, et cetera, and be able to kind of aggregate it or even do meaningful inferences to be able to say, I think you're missing something like this, or you you should be working on this right now, or someone should be owning that level of uh, kind of a virtual teammate who can do some of that for you. I really see that as kind of the next next level of things. So we have a lot of like CIOs, CTOs, chief data officers of enterprises that listen to this podcast. And I think one thing that they're all struggling with is trying to figure out just like, how do we get started, right? Like, hey, we get it. This is really cool, right? The, the semantic search, uh, everything that yeah. you just laid out, really, really cool. Okay, I'll be able to do that within Confluence. But even just in terms of, I mean, is the fundamental problem here first, you just need to one, like get your data in one place and then be able to, you know, index it and then be able to run the search over it? Or like, where are we kind of starting from in terms of how do you even approach getting to the space where you can start to leverage AI? Yeah, that's a good question. So when it comes to like a small company or a company that hasn't started their AI journey, so to speak, so much of it is is in the market now in terms of open source, et cetera, that, that you can even start playing around with. Absolutely, data is so critical to all of it. It's kind of the bed for all of it to be to be built on top of. But at the same time, because some of these data projects are such a big investment, it takes multiple years to do that. I think the best approach is to take a slice of it and really try it out for one slice and then kind of grow from that. Because otherwise, one of the biggest risks I feel with AI is this whole thing about like, let's get all of this data boiling the ocean. Let's get get it all together before we actually build something useful for our customers. The goal should be like, hey, within, within six weeks or three months, we can get something useful for our customers with the limited data we have. And we'll see what that, that means. And the quality might not be great, but we'll kind of riff on it and improve it over time. That's a much better approach than waiting for the data pipelines, et cetera. Is that something that you think about within Atlassian suite of products as well? It's because the, the surface area is so large, the ICPs, the personas that are using it can be everywhere from engineers to designers to completely non-technical users, business users, whatever. So you can create something very general that allows them to you know, query, search everything, do all that. Or you could go very narrow into, hey, I'm going to help a, you know, a designer yeah, wipe whiteboard this you know new product idea or something like how how do you think about those two contrasts? Yeah, I think it's it's a mix. Then some of it can be the this kind of very horizontal solutions that are like maybe it's just search and better search, semantic search, whatever that might be. That can be kind of on all the products integrated with all the products. And then there are those like vertical problems that are like can we go deep into this thing? And it's specifically for for this product or this use case. And so I think I honestly, this is why I I think that the innovation and the moving forward with AI 
needs to literally happen at every level. It needs to happen both at like, say you're like, you know, very close to the customer, that level, as well as on the data and infrastructure level, where you're doing all of that innovation about bringing all this data together, improving your relevance, dealing with hallucinations, et cetera, all those things. It needs to happen at that platform level, but also at the product level or wherever you're closer to the customer, you are looking at those very slice level problems as well. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're still thinking about how can we bite off a smaller portion to innovate upon that, you know, while still thinking about the broader context. Absolutely. How do we, okay. Yeah. Absolutely. That makes sense. And the question that I also have that, that a lot of people have asked is, what's the hardest thing for enterprises and truly enterprises, right? Large companies like Atlassian yeah. trying to adopt LLMs. Like what, what is the hardest part? And, and, you know, for a while I thought it was say security. Hmm. A lot of CISOs, for example, have said, well, we just pay OpenAI or, or whatever vendor a bunch of money and we get our reserved instance. And, you know, from a data security perspective, we kind of now are, are at least in our own sandboxed environment within that, right? right? So is it stuff like that? Is it data security? Is it uh, overall security? Is it yeah. cost? Is it fine tuning? Like there's all these different areas. Like what, what are the biggest challenges you think to adopting this? Yeah. So, you know, a couple of things there. So obviously the open AI, et cetera, they are trained on, on data that is publicly available, large corpuses of data. And so if you want to make things truly relevant for an enterprise customer, then it needs to be something that has a lot of context in terms of what that customer's data is. And to your point, yes, that is absolutely a concern where like, how do you make sure that you're not training on their data for someone else? Like th those sorts of things need to be really got to be crystal clear around that. And Atlassian has very, very clear guidelines and they're shared with their customers. The other one is over time, the relevance really needs to improve. The hallucinations need to need to reduce, et cetera. Things need to really become more relevant because that's where the magic sauce is. Like how can it, it, it behave in a way that it is thinking your thoughts before you are even being able to, to put it out there. But the last one, which you called out, cost is, that's a huge concern right now in oh. terms of how much you can, how hard you can go on this. And hopefully over the next couple of months or with everyone else catching up, things, things will start, start becoming a little more reasonable. But I think right now, I think I would say cost as well as handling data for enterprise those are the two big things. But I mean, Atlassian's doing really well, right? So like, is cost really that big, that big of a deal for, for someone like Atlassian? Like, it's just like, you know, you're doing well, you have a lot of customers, like, it, it seems like you can spread that cost am amongst a lot of customers. Like, how big of a deal is it really? It, it is still pretty significant, especially if you want to continue to do a lot of kind of behind the scenes stuff, etc. I think it is pretty significant. Okay. I didn't realize that, but that, that makes sense. Well, I want to kind of wrap it up with a question that I wanted to ask you, which is, I think, I'm sure other engineering leaders at earlier stage companies come to you regularly for advice and, and ask you various questions. Are there pieces of advice or feedback that you're finding yourself consistently giving to those leaders? That's a really good question. So I've been at two startups, so kind of learned, learned at the School of Hard Knocks. But 
I think this is a very, very exciting time, first of all, to be doing something that's kind of new and the world is just going to open up with so much of the the innovation within AI and LLM. So very, very exciting time to be, to be here. If I look back even on my own career, I think one of the things is constantly be on, on the path of like just this continuous learning, I think. Literally every startup I was at, when you got in, you you had an idea, and then you, in in six months you were doing something slightly different, and then morphed, etc. But just being able to roll with that, I think that that that's 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 really important. Just in terms of actually doing that, uh, final question actually is uh, AI, I imagine, is a very exciting product. You've, you've obviously talked about your studying, how it's going to work yeah. and things like that. Yeah. But you still have your day job. You're trying to ro- do one-on-ones. You're getting into leadership conversations about, you know, something happening, whatever, all of these sort of things. So is it a change that you specifically make to say, hey, no, I'm going to start blocking off more time for me to kind of do this discovery and, and start learning and play around with open source things or stuff like that? Or is it, or h- how do you kind of go about yeah. making that change? You know, I think one of the things that I'm super grateful for is like our industry allows us to be so curious, right? It's like, there's always this next thing that you can kind of be curious about that you want to go out and learn. So some of it is just the curiosity just makes things happen where you are able to find like the information or the articles, etc. But a lot of it is just um, learning by doing. I think we, we had the opportunity to roll out pretty significant AI features within Atlassian. So learning as you go and learning quickly because things are changing all the time. That for me has been the best way to keep up, I think. But I, I, I wouldn't disregard the curiosity. Got to be, got to be curious. <laughs> that makes a ton of sense. Well, Swati, thank you so much for the time and, and going through all this. Uh, is there anything coming up for Confluence at Lassian broadly that you'd like to highlight? I think we're kind of growing into obviously the AI stuff we talked about, very, very exciting and interesting. And there's there's more and more coming there and also different content types. So like I mentioned earlier, Confluence used to be just about pages and now we have whiteboards within it and databases just launched as well. But I think more and more of this, this idea of the content types being more seamless and being able, it's more about knowledge than like these kind of very segregated content types. I think that's very interesting as well. Well, we're looking forward to see what what you all ship, uh, especially just given the treasure trove of data and knowledge that you guys sit in within so many companies. So looking forward to it. And thank you again for the time. Awesome. Thank you for having me. 